I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're doing a golf architecture mailbag. We put out a call for questions on Twitter, and you came through with some really interesting questions that Andy Johnson and I are going to answer right now. So Andy is here with me. How's it going? Garrett, I'm doing great. Just uh, ready to talk golf architecture. That's a fun, fun thing that we get to do every once in a while. All golf architecture in this pod and uh, we're going to dig into the questions in a minute. But first, we have got a sponsor for this episode. This episode is in part brought to you by Fat Cork. So this is this is a provocative name here. What is this company all about? It's a uh, it's a new sponsor, and I think people that uh, are into golf architecture will appreciate this. This is uh, the owner of Fat Cork is a golf nut. What they do is uh, they do champagne delivery. So they deliver champagne to your door and. Uh, one of the neat things that I've learned with uh, with getting to know Brian at Fat Cork is that uh, you know the champagne industry is super complex, but the big thing is that they get their champagne direct from growers. So they they go to the growers and they work exclusively with small uh, growers of champagne, and they get their bottles that are unique to them. So what a lot of people that grow champagne grapes do is they sell the majority of their grapes to a large scale producer, but they keep 10% of their grapes and make their own like very unique small batch bottles of champagne. That's what this champagne is. So with Valentine's Day on the horizon, this is a exceptional Valentine's Day gift. Uh, I We got a uh, a shipment of this right before the holidays and i have i've never seen my wife and mother-in-law so happy with the champagne they were drinking it is really delicious stuff it's super unique it's stuff that you cannot get in stores so they have uh, a couple things you can buy individual bottles uh which is a great way to test it out they also have a club they have uh, three different tiers of the club. They ship quarterly. So there's the Weekender, which is four bottles per shipment. The Frequent Fizzers, which is six bottles per shipment. And the Merry Makers, which is 12 bottles per shipment. Again, this is stuff you can't get in the store. Very unique and, and very good champagne. If you use the promo code GOLF, you will get free shipping. And that might not sound like a great deal, but it's very expensive to ship uh, champagne. So this is a, a good deal. Um, on top of that, they're humans. They they will write handwritten gift notes if you want a gift note in your in your shipments. And really, you know, the club is a a fantastic gift if you or your loved one likes champagne because they are going to be getting a shipment every quarter of really unique champagne. So that's Fat Cork. Um, check them out. Uh, really cool company. Okay, let's get into the podcast. You ready, Andy? Yeah. Okay, so we got a lot of questions here. We're not going to get to every single one of them, obviously, but I've kind of tried to organize them a little bit. The first category of questions I have is what I've called hot topics. So stuff that you know people debate about in the golf world, questions that kind of touch on those issues, right? So the first one from Chad Mum, who is currently has to be pretty busy right now getting ready for the the premiere of, of Full Swing, the Netflix documentary. But uh, Chad Mum asks this, if slash when the ball gets rolled back for championship play, what will be the biggest change architecturally for new courses that want to host tour events slash majors? So any takes on this, Andy, do you think that a rollback would result in certain architectural changes in the courses that we see on TV in pro tournaments? I think, yeah, I, I think the the one big thing is flexibility, malleability. I think that will be important. Having a wide range of tees. Uh, obviously, the one course that jumps to mind that I think about a lot is Augusta National. And one of the reasons I think about that 
golf course in particular is that they have two sets of tees and like they're very, you know, we have two sets of tees. We have a back tee and a member's tee, right? And it looks really great because there aren't tee boxes all over the place. But at the same time, when distance changes, as we've seen, they've had to build out tees further and further back. But it say say we get a 10% reduction. I didn't, This is just hypothetical, which it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. It seems like it's going to be kind of stop where we are. Maybe drivers are a little harder to hit. And they go, they're just, you know, but if it got reduced, they would need to move tees up. Now, my question is, like, are you then just going to eventually have to build them back out? Because what we know is that players are are going to keep getting longer. Swings are going to get faster. So whatever the regulations that are implemented are at, that when they get implemented, it'll probably be the shortest this era of golfers ever is. And then they will begin to get longer again. This is just the natural progression. So I think in terms of what new courses will need is that you want to build golf courses with that malleability. You want to be able to, you know, I think one of the things that we can take away from the golden age is that golf courses are going to get built around generally, you know, you're, so you need to leave some space in case you need back to you. Say the ball gets reduced 10%, right? then these golf courses, the distance constraints are going to be different. The important thing, though, I think, is that infrastructure is only going to increase for big-time tournament golf. So you're never, you're always going to need that same space. Like Space requirements are going to be the same. It's not like all of a sudden the ball gets rolled back. Woo, we can host anywhere we want. No. Yeah, we're going to Cypress Point. Yeah. What they happen. what tournament golf needs more so than anything is space to put grandstands. I mean, I'll I'll never forget talking to the tournament director at the PGA Championship at Kiowa and we I was just talking to him. I was like, "Man, this place is so cool for a Ryder Cup." Like, you know, you talk about the mis- most historic Ryder Cup in the history of golf was there. And it was an awesome Ryder Cup venue. It is an awesome Ryder. It was an awesome match play golf course. Like big swings, great shots, you know, get really rewarded. You can make birdies out there, but there's also disasters all over the place. And there's enough space. It's not a golf national thing, right? But it's not big enough. It can host a major, but it, it doesn't have enough space for a Ryder Cup. Think about that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, the the requirements for a Ryder Cup are just outrageous and obviously have increased so much since the war on the shore. But we think that that's outrageous, but the Ryder Cup is probably the direction that infrastructure needs are going to for uh-huh. a major championship, right? They might be on the, on the you know, what what was ostentatious for this Ryder Cup? Am I using that word right? Over You mean like Over overboard? Top, yeah. For yeah. this Ryder Cup is pr- in in fifteen years is probably going to be a normal PGA setup. Gotcha. From okay. Infrastructure. Well, it, yeah. I mean, it, this is a, a really good point about which venues are being selected for major championships. You can't just go to the best golf courses. You have to go to the golf courses that fit certain requirements. And furthermore, this is part of the reason why the USGA, for instance, is booking these venues so out far out in advance because these courses need to know what they need to do in order to have the kind of infrastructure that's necessary to host a tournament like this. But getting back to the question, so ball gets rolled back for championship play. I would say if you see anything at courses architecturally that will happen because of this, it will mainly just be there won't be as much of a need to change in the future. We hope, right? that the pace of change is going to slow down a little bit and courses will be less required to continually lengthen, continually move bunkers, continually make adjustments to accommodate the length of the game. That's the hope. I don't know if that's actually going to materialize as a result of the rollback that is likely to happen, which is likely to be pretty modest, is likely to be not quite as much as you or I would want it to be. But the hope would be that courses wouldn't have to spend so much money just finding new teeing areas, planting new trees and places to defend against the length that players are hitting the ball, moving bunkers, doing all this stuff that they've had to do 
over and over for the past couple of decades because distance has gotten so out of control. The hope would be just that that process would slow down a little bit, right? Yeah, I think the other big hope is that on the the forgiveness front, you know, there's been a lot of talk about about reducing the sweet spot in professional golf and just yeah. leading to a little bit more variability. And when I miss it off the toe, it doesn't go just five yards shorter. It might go 20 yards shorter. Like, you know, if you play with older equipment, it does. I think, um, yeah, I, you know, the reality, if you think about equipment and regulation in the past is when regulation happens, what happens then is it gives the engineers something new to innovate around. So listen, like there's going to be a roll if there's a rollback and it happens, it's just going to start the the new innovation trend. Yeah, that's like, yeah, it's just that's been, the reality. That's the, I mean, that's, that, that's been the story from the beginning, right? That's that's happened over and over for the past 100, 100 years. That's not going to change. And, and so, yeah, we'll see how much of an effect a rollback, whatever kind of rollback happens is actually going to have on the game. Uh, likelihood is it's not going to be as uh, extreme as as people think it might be. All right, next question. This is from J J Jat X J Jat X J J A T X. Oh, there you go, J J A T X. There you go. Okay, that makes sense. What will we look back on in the future and think was wrong with this era of golf course architecture? I think this is a really interesting question. I love this question. I have a couple of ideas. Curious as to what you think, Andy. This is, um, I hope this doesn't offend anyone and this is not a shot across the, the bow at anyone. Um, when I think about where golf is going in the next 20 to 30 years, and I think about golf architecture, new construction, obviously uh, constraints on resources that are at its highest ever. You know, water is becoming an issue more and more places than just California. Um, Labor is an issue everywhere in terms, especially labor in terms of golf course maintenance. So, you know, at a time where the inputs of, of golf are being, you know, looked at, you know, that it's, this is one of the things that golf, when you look at golf from a lens, there's a lot of positives, right? There's exercise, outdoor time, all these things. There's a lot that goes into a golf course, whether it's water, maintenance, uh, inputs into the turf to grow grass, all these things. And, and I think about all of that and I see renderings for new courses. I see new golf courses being built and I think, okay, so we're trying to make golf more sustainable and make it a game that lasts what could be a time where it could be tough on golf given land use and different things. And you see some of the stuff that's getting built and you're wondering what, what's sustainable about that. Um, so what, what does the, what does the maintenance crew look like? What does the maintenance budget look like? Yeah. What is the maintenance time? When you see some of these ideas, what's the maintenance time look like? What, you know, and, and I do not mean to pick out anything. We, it was a recent podcast, a friend of mine, Rob Collins. Like I look at his, one of his greens at, at Landman, some of his greens at Landman. And I wonder how long are you going to be able to maintain that? You know, it, it, could you, is a, is a 30,000 square foot green really practical in 20 years? Um, if we, you know, and obviously there could be autonomous mowing, there could be all these advancements, but at the same time, like when I think about which direction golf course architecture needs to go is like, if I wanted to be on the cutting edge and I was just talking with about this with another architect, if I was personally going to be on the cutting edge of golf architecture, I would be lending, I would be aiming to build the most sustainable, lowest input, great golf possible. And the renderings for Cabot, uh, pine or the citrus farm one, Cabot, Cabot Barrens, Cabot yeah. Barrens. That doesn't look sustainable at all to me. That looks like a, a shitload of maintenance time. Mm-hmm. And it's just bunker. a rendering. It's just a rendering, right? Yeah. We don't know what the final product is going to look like, but the rendering makes it look like there's a lot of really intricate bunkering. And part of what I wonder about is is design pushing what will take the best picture for social media. 
And and listen, like I take pictures. I know when I take a picture like of of a certain feature that it will pop on social media, right? And I think that golf architects know that also. If I build this feature like this, it's going to photograph really well. And people are, I mean, photo, photography and golf courses have been inter- intertwined forever. You know, like you go back to like, you know, photos are what sell people to go to visit a golf course. So I guess like my thing here is that golf architecture should be very, very aware of sustainability and be building golf courses that are more sustainable. And I look at some of the new stuff that's getting built and I think it's the complete opposite. I think that's a big mistake. Yeah, I'm on the same wavelength as you. My response to this question of what we might look back on in this era of golf course architecture and regret is building to what I would consider overly perfectionistic maintenance standards. Right. And this is maybe more of an, an agronomy take than an architecture take. But a lot of courses are kind of built to be maintained in a way that is, as you say, highly intensive and also, you know, just built in, in, a, in an expensive way that's maybe not necessary for good golf. So I'm thinking of these kind of fancy subsurface systems under greens that are going in all over the place these these uh new kinds of bunker linings stuff like that i just wonder about maximum economy and efficiency of maintenance and whether architects are really building to that or whether they're kind of giving in to this race to get more and more perfect turf which golf really doesn't need and maybe isn't reasonable to expect golf to have going forward in certain areas of the country, it's going to be awfully hard to have grass in in like 10, 20 years, potentially. And so, you know, we're, we're building towards this ideal of the, you know, perfectly smooth, green, velvety golf course that's just not going to be a reality in some places. And I would love to see a push away from that and toward more kind of rough and ready maintenance, things that, you know, a small crew can do on a low budget. It's possible to have that kind of golf. I don't think we're building to it right now. And we may look back in a few decades and say what we called minimalism in the first couple of decades of the 21st century really was not minimalism in the most important sense of the word, which is minimal impact on the land and kind of minimal requirements for keeping the course up. You know, it's pretty ironic that the stuff that we've been building in this so-called minimalist era, a lot of it truly is not minimalism in that sense of the term that I've just laid out. And so I think that that's something that we may look back on and and cringe. Yeah. I, um, I mean, everybody likes to wax poetic about Scotland and how they want to build golf like Scotland. And there Except are nobody's f- doing that. So you know? few projects that are doing that. Right. <laughs> like I Absolutely. Just, yeah. I can think of one that like it has a very conscious effort towards like being sustainable and it's one being built in in central slash northern California, you know, where yeah, Brambles, where it's extremely, you know, the building a golf course there is, you know, just getting to build one there is is, you know, is difficult. And, you know, so I just think that's the thing that I that kind of keeps me up at night is is the idea of you know where where the world and the world view on golf is going and and seemingly the complete opposite direction golf architecture is going all right let's go on to a new question this one is one that i think you may sort of uh, throw to me ultimately because I, I might have a little more context for it but um amol yajnik asks Thoughts on RTJ2 in Golf Magazine saying that architecture has gone too far in the direction of easy par, hard bogey. Um, did you read this article? I did, you, not. did you see this? Okay. It I was saw just, it. I just didn't, didn't. It was posted online like a few days ago. It was magazine only for, you know, a couple of weeks, I think. And basically, it was an interview with Robert Trent Jones Jr., in which he uh, you know, lays out some criticisms of modern golf course architecture and defends the legacy of his father and his brother 
and uh, you know, just offers a different perspective on golf course architecture as it's currently practiced than we're used to seeing. So it was a pretty interesting article. I'm not sure that the article really explained what RTJ2 meant when he said we've gone in the direction of easy par, hard bogey. Um, I I could certainly dig into that concept more and and you know say that. Well, I, I find it pretty easy to make bogeys at like Pacific Dunes and, and Streamsong Black, uh, but there are some courses that have been built in the modern era that you know maybe have gone too far in the direction of user friendliness. That's a separate discussion. But I think that what RTJ2 is saying in this article generally is worth listening to. Um, I've interviewed him before, Andy. You know that 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 Bobby and I get along, right? Yeah. You are um, both both lit- big fans of the literary world. <laughs> we're both both want to be poets. Except I don't really write poetry, and he's more he, he's he's actually a poet. But um, I find him to be a delightful, fascinating person. I really do. I have some criticisms of his golf course architecture, but uh, you know, I really have fun talking to him, and uh, I I think that he's definitely worth listening to. I wouldn't reject what he's saying out of hand. So a couple of things that he's right about. People do tend to oversimplify his father's legacy. That legacy is multifaceted, and RTJ did the kind of work that memberships and green committees at that time wanted him to do, right? It would have been weird if he had done anything other than what he did at courses like Oakland Hills and Olympic Club. You know, he was being asked to build these championship courses, and he did it in a certain way. And, you know, we can criticize that now, but in the context of its time, it made sense. RTJ2, I think, is also right that certain aspects of the in vogue restoration slash renovation program are a a little bit repetitive sometimes, right? And I've heard him criticize sub air, precision air. I echo those criticisms for sure. He also, I think, deserves some credit for a varied and sometimes excellent body of work. Sometimes excellent. I wouldn't say that everything that has come out of his firm has been truly excellent. Okay. But in the end, he he kind of paints it with too broad of a brush. He goes after the tree removal issue, right? Makes it an environmental issue. Says that removing trees is an environmental disgrace. Th- this this is it's more complicated than that, right? I mean, sometimes removing trees is the best thing that you can do for a golf course habitat. Yeah. Well, it, it makes it easier to grow grass, cheaper to grow grass. And and if it's done right, it helps the trees that remain be healthy, right? In a lot of cases, trees aren't able to thrive because they're surrounded by other trees. And so each site needs to be treated differently. This tree removal subject, we need to approach it with a little more nuance than we traditionally have. So I would I would say that. And then finally, easy par, hard bogey. Andy, what do you make of that? Do you think that modern architecture is too easy for players? One of the things I see as a trend is is the removal of consequence. And I think that's important to design is the idea of, of if I don't pull the shot off, I, I could be in a really bad spot. And I, I, I think there's some truth to, to what he said. I don't think that it is... Um, it is 100% true. Again, like I think with a lot of things, and it's very easy when you're doing a magazine piece to to have quotes that get kind of that are very broad that that don't have a ton of context to them. Right. Like I think that I think having space off the tee, if you're going to have a golf course that has space off the tee, it has to be married with a course that that has if you're not going to challenge people off the tee, it has to challenge them somewhere, right? Yes. So, you know, this is the whole yin and yang, right? And I think that's what the best architects do so well is that there's balance, right? You know, if you, I saw there was a question about, you know, what makes Alistair McKenzie great? And it's like, well, <laughs> if it was yeah, that where, simple. Where do you start? I mean, if like, it was yeah. that simple, <laughs> like, I think the, the greatest architects always know the right, like they have the right buttons to push. They know when they need to like kick it up a notch at the green or they know when the green can be really quiet because what you had to endure to get to the green was, was a 
was a big labor. And then sometimes like everything's nuts and that's okay, but not every hole is that right. And I think some of what architecture, there are some golf courses that are getting built that like, you don't have to think about anything. You just hit the ball and you go hit your next shot. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the, like the right direction for it, but Hey, Variety is is great to have in golf architecture, and the fact that we're actually, you know, getting to a point where there's so many, there's enough golf courses being built that there can be variety. I think this is one exciting thing is that you know not everybody has to build the same golf course, and uh, so I would say that I think that there's some truth to what he said, but I don't think that it it is a a thing that you could brush with like all of architecture. I don't think anybody could go play like a a course designed by Tom Doak and feel like they like got off easy. Like though he, I mean, in fact, that's like a big criticism of Tom Doak sometimes, which is that, crazy that his courses are too hard. <laughs> and so there is a lot of variety in modern architecture, but I also think that, you know, a point that you're implicitly making in there is that we have a lot of courses from the middle of the 20th century around still. Yeah. We have a lot of penal golf courses out there with, bunkers kind of front right front left on the greens and bunkers to the right and left of the fairway we have courses with a lot of rough there are plenty of those courses out there we're not lacking for supply on courses in the rtj mode now we have some more courses that are wide where angles are kind of the the place of emphasis would i want every course in the world to be like that no not necessarily but we're just kind of Right now, there's a, a bit of a restoration of balance happening in, in golf course architecture where we're getting some more variety of courses. And that that is a good thing. I think that's the thing. Variety, right? You don't want every golf course to be the same. And and not every golf course should be, you know, built with the same goal even. Yeah. You know, I think that's the other thing. It's like, you know, I think good golf architecture, and I think this can get really misconstrued, but like, it should start with a goal, like what's the purpose of this project? And then everything should be based off of that. And I think a little bit too much of what's going on now is is maybe like we need to build a course like this instead of being like, what should our course be and going from there? Mm -hmm. So uh, a healthy golf architecture has a variety of courses. A healthy gut might have oh, something to do. <laughs> I'm not going to even attempt to complete that segue because it's so bad. I need to, uh, Brendan Porath needs to give me some, uh, some lessons in how to do a, a segue properly when we're just rolling into the ad reads like this. But our next partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every day. Uh, I gave AG1 a shot because I was just looking for a healthy way to start my day, get off on the right track. I take AG1 first thing in the morning, right before I take the kids out to the bus stop, and it just gives me an immediate boost. I feel energetic. I feel healthy. Uh, it's a great way to start the day. This is this is how it goes. You know, we're we're kind of running out to the bus stop. I just you know make my AG1. I drink it, and it's it's a great way to start because my starts to the day aren't always the healthiest unless I do this. So, uh, wondering, Andy, how is your experience with AG1? going. Uh, it's great. I I think it just for me instills a, a habit and it gets me, you know, I think one of the things that my life could be characterized uh, as is a little bit of uh, control or like a controlled chaos. And, um, you know, I, I kind of thr thrive with without without plans. That's that's an area that I'm pretty comfortable in. But I do like planning. And I like when there is a plan laid out. And you, you like the concept of it. Well, AG one, <laughs> I have a plan every morning, and I start to I start making my coffee. Once I get the coffee brewing, I make my AG one, and I'm like, I feel like the day is off on the right foot. So you know, one of the cool things that I know they're doing as part of the promo is the travel packs. That's been super helpful for me when I travel, that I don't get thrown off of uh, off of my habit. Because these travel packs, it's so simple. You just take the powder, you dump it in, and you need water. And your your day is off to start. You don't have to like worry as much about getting all the nutrients, everything you need, because it's all in this one pack. So it's made it very easy for me to be healthier in 2023, which uh, is something that I'm trying to do. 
If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash the fried egg. That's athleticgreens.com slash the fried egg. Check it out. All right, let's go on to some questions that have to do with public golf. We got a lot of questions about public and affordable golf that I thought were pretty interesting. It's been a hot topic in Club TFE lately, Club TFE, our membership program. Whenever we post about private courses, there is, you know, there are some comments like, hey, you know, I wish this course weren't private, right? Or I wish there were more great architecture that we could appreciate on the public side. Now, there is plenty of that architecture that we also post about, but this is a an ongoing issue, especially in American golf. So, the first of these questions from B. Deniso on Twitter, why has the COVID golf boom not translated into more interesting muni architecture and non-resort affordable public golf? So we had this, this, this is a great question. We had this, this COVID boom, right? Golf was on the rise. There was some hope that public golf courses would make a comeback, that we would see more good architecture happening. Maybe there would be some more money for renovations. So far, that hasn't really happened. That's not to say that it's not going to happen in the future, but so far we've seen that be pretty quiet. Things be pretty quiet on that front. Whereas like there's some private golf course development happening for sure. So any thoughts about this question? You know, the COVID boom, why didn't it translate to an immediate public golf architecture boom? Uh, We've talked about this before on the pod, but it's really hard for public golf courses to do big projects. It's extremely hard. You know, a, a good example would be last year, Lawsonia did a, an entire bunker renovation. And they tr- they did it without shutting down holes. The problem with public golf, like if I'm a member at a club and my club decides to um, to do a renovation, they're still collecting my dues month in, month out, right? They aren't losing revenue. You know, they might be losing anecdotal revenue of guest play and, you know, concessions and things that are bought on the golf course. But, you know, they're still collecting that month in, month out dues revenue. If a public course shuts down to do a big renovation, they lose all that revenue. And golf's never been more popular. These courses are, they don't have tee times to spare. So like, okay, like we don't have any demand. We don't have any supply. And we're just going to shut down and turn off our golf course at the time where it's never been more popular. That's it's just not a smart bu- business decision. Now, like, are these courses like the courses need work? They need to get like more player results and more wear. They're going to need more of this stuff. So I think the struggle is that a architects are extremely busy. That's the other thing is that there's not a huge capacity. Like if you're buying doing work. Right now is not a good time. Like construction costs are through the roof. Architects are hard to find. So in a way, like I actually think like the smartest thing a public course can do is in a way just sit, keep collecting revenue, and hopefully they can save it and put it in a smart spot and then capitalize when the market's a little bit of a better situation. This would be like, you know, I've got a big savings account. And the market's going crazy. It's at never seen before highs. And I've, I've, I'm collecting this, you know, I'm, I've got all this money and I'm just going to keep, I'm going to buy all this stuff at all time highs, right? It wouldn't be necessarily the smartest investing. I'm not, listen, I'm not a, I'm not not a a financial advisor. I'm not a financial advisor, (laughs) but like most success stories start from buying at lows. And so right now is not like, it's a really bad time for public golf to get to to do projects because a there's a huge demand for them and b there's a there's not a lot of people out there to do work and it's expensive to do work. So, I think the other coin side of this coin is why haven't we seen an explosion in public new public golf development? Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated question. That that's a good set of points that I hadn't thought about before how, you know, just the 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 nature of the market right now sort of would would push public courses to wait and see, right, in order to do work. I, I, I think, think that that's would be the probably best. the smart move. Yeah, it, yeah. It, I mean, like why 
why try and get in an arms race with with private clubs that you can't compete with? I think like the big miss of public golf, the huge miss was that more courses weren't during doing work ahead of this right time during the downturn. Yeah. Well, when there were when they could when a public course could conceivably hire like a great example, Memorial Park, yep. the renovation of Memorial Park, who who hired Tom Doak to do the renovation there. Right now, if they tried to hire Tom Doak, they're competing with like oceanfront sites, sandy yeah. sites. Or Common Ground yeah. is a good example, yeah. too. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Common Ground project happened in kind of a similar time period where there was a downturn in, in golf architecture. It was an interesting enough project to catch Tom Doak's attention, and, and that's where they went with it. Well, I want to get to your question of why they aren't building new public courses, though. I just I do want to talk real quick about like the best affordable public golf courses, new courses in the country and when they were built and who they were built by. Right. Yeah. So if you think about it, it's like either a downturns with very popular architects, like established architects, but then you have like your rustic Canyon. You know what they did? They hired a young, relatively unproven golf architect that built that golf course, wild horse. They hired two guys that people that a common golfer wouldn't know, but it had built some of the best courses in the world for core and Crenshaw winter park. Similar. They hired Keith, uh, Keith Reb and Riley Johns, two guys that had worked for core and Crenshaw. Like if you think about the really successful, affordable golf courses in America, they, in the modern age, not, you know, old courses, they have a common thread of, of hiring young, relatively unproven golf architects because they're they're buying at a low you know and the same thing could be said for soul park when they hired gill yep yeah absolutely gill was not nearly as busy when he built soul park um even less so when he built rustic canyon and so public golf courses really if you're looking to build an affordable public course or renovate one then those are really uh the businesses that should be looking for the next up-and-coming architect Right. Mm-hmm. People are calling for these up and coming architects to get new opportunities. Well, if you look at history, some great opportunities for up and coming architects have come at these kinds of projects. And then all of a sudden, 15, 20 years later, people realize, oh, my goodness, you know, Gil Hance built Rustic Canyon. He's the biggest golf architect in the world right now. And there's a public course that I can play for an affordable rate that he built. And so that's that's the cool thing that you can get if you're making that long-term play. Now, why have no, there not been more new public course projects? You've laid out a rationale for why there haven't been many renovations. And I think that one reason for this, one reason that there's a lack of public new course builds right now is that, remember, we way overbuilt in the U.S. in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, built way too many golf courses, and the market is still correcting itself. Right. That market correction has slowed down a little bit. The COVID boom certainly made that dynamic slow down. There have been fewer course closures, but we're still losing public golf courses. Public golf courses are still closing. And that's because we just had an oversupply and we still haven't gotten to a point where we need more. You know, I just don't think, uh, you know, there's, there's not really a huge market need for new public courses. And then besides that, Given the current conditions of the labor market, of the materials market, it's just so hard to expect somebody to build an affordable public golf course right now. The cost of land, I mean, it's just, it would be a crazy thing to do. It would be a great thing to do. I'd love for somebody to do it just out of kind of principles, to give back to the game. And there are some organizations and people who have done that. The West Palm Beach Project, I think it is, is an example of that. And organizations like the USGA, the PGA of America, like local or regional golf associations can make big moves on this front because their motive is not necessarily to make a ton of money. Their motive is to give back to the game. But that's really the attitude that you would have to have in order to build a public golf course, an affordable public golf course nowadays. You would have to have the motive of giving back to the game because you're not going to make much money on it. It's really expensive and you're not going to get much in return. And that's why we see more private courses being built because there's a better business model for those right now. Yeah, if we want to talk about the business model, right? If I if I go about like let's just say I want to build a new golf course. 
the outlay for a new golf course, you're looking at like $25 million. Okay. So if I, if it's a private club, I can immediately start selling memberships against that and recouping my money. Right. Um, if I want to build a, a public golf course, you know, you don't make a dime on that investment until the day you open and start making greens fees. And then your greens fees are going against your operating costs. So your time on, re, on, on getting your investment back is decades. I mean, you're talking about like a very long time because say I put $25 million into a new public golf course with all the facilities are 20 million, right? The, the market then, you know, you're talking about, let's just say we have a really good facility that turns a million dollar profit every year. So after I put my 20 million in, it's going to take 20 years to recoup that $20 million, right? And that's like a great case scenario, right? So in terms of like, it's just like nobody is putting out that money with that type of like return rate, right? So if I sell a private, if I do a private club and I sell a full membership, I've recouped my my upfront cost, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think like where people need to focus on is like, listen, like there isn't going to be this rash run of, of new public golf courses being built. It's not, it's not going to happen. Like the resorts happen because they buy at the, in, in remote areas where land's really, really cheap and good, and they can build golf courses for cheap, and then they charge very high rates, right? So that's the re resort model. It's way different, right? You know, you're talking about like buying really cheap land, not, you know, you can't build an affordable golf course in the sticks, you know, with you're not. How are you going to get people there, right? right. It's got, well, I mean, you know, if if you build it, they will come. Concept, but not all yeah, courses then, can do that. Yeah. So, so where this needs to focus on, and and this goes back to the first part of the question is like identifying the really great facilities that are underutilized right now, or that aren't what they should be, and focusing uh, the mental and and energy towards like why hasn't this been renovated this could be an awesome golf course because the reality is like there isn't affordable cheap land close to cities what there is though is there are golf facilities that exist that could be renovated or restored or whatever it may be that are turned from mediocre or poor facilities into very good facilities for less money and that is where business models start to make sense. So, you know, that's where I, I, I think the other thing is like, hopefully golf continues to push more towards the UK model. And, and I think like right now that's probably unrealistic given the, the sense of, of, of uh, how busy private and public golf courses are, but maybe eventually that, that, that changes. And there's, there's more, more ability for private clubs to open their doors to the public. There would have to be a cultural change in America and American golf for that to happen, but I am 100% on board with uh, with it happening. And if anybody has suggestions for how that could be encouraged among private clubs, more kind of public access, then I'm all ears. I'd love to hear those ideas. You know, another reality that is kind of sitting behind all of this is that COVID, as far as I understand, I'm not an economist, exacerbated income inequality, meaning there may be more people now able to pay for high-end private club memberships, and there may be fewer people who are active in the public golf market. And if you look at when the public golf market has been at its most active, you look at the post-World War II era when the middle class in America was really emerging and strengthening, there were quite a few public courses being built. Were they all great? Were they architectural masterworks? No. But that was when the public golf market in America really emerged, when there was a, a strong kind of middle class to support it. And uh, right now, that's, that's kind of not the direction of society as far as I understand it. Again, this is kind of uh, these issues are above my pay grade, but that's another uh, dynamic to track in uh, on this subject is you know how many how many people are there who can really pay for private club memberships well there are more and more seemingly and how many people are there who can consistently support a local public golf course 
I hope there are more in the future and I hope there are more in the post COVID era, but that's, that's not where things seem to be moving. So a corollary to this question is something that Ryan Barath asked with so much new construction and renovation focused on country clubs and high end resorts. Do you think great architecture is becoming elitist or unaffordable to the biggest group of regular golfers? Um, I don't think so. I think that there's, I think all the, there's a lot of great affordable public facilities that are being highlighted more so now than ever before. Um, I think, you know, if you go through it, there's, there's a really great affordable public facility in every region of the country at this point. And to me, to me, the awareness was always the issue of of where to play golf. And I think that's becoming less and less of it, an issue. Um, you know, like the, the country has always been out of balance in terms of where the, the great golf courses are. Um, I would just, you know, is it is it is it worse now than it was five years ago? I don't know, because the awareness of facilities, some facilities is so much higher. Right. Like think about Sweetens Cove when it opened in 2014. Nobody knew what it was, you know, where it was. Right. Or Lasonia or Wild Horse. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in a way that the discovery, the the country, social media has made golf smaller, if that makes sense. The world of golf smaller. Like people know where the better place, where great places to go play golf are. Um, and it's easier to get to them when you know where they are, right? It's not like I'm going to go try this golf course. I'm picking this golf course because it's the most expensive one in town. I think that's the the big thing is that there's been a lot of highlighting of facilities that, that were great. Like I, I think back to, you know, when I lived in LA, um, before I did this, I, I found like two guys I played golf with and they were locals. Like I got randomly paired with them and I went and played more with them. The one guy said, I'll never forget it. He's from New Zealand. His name was Tony Parr. Good golf name. name. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I play, I played a bunch of courses in the area with them. And then we played rustic Canyon. And this was before it was really like, you know, internet famous. And, uh, and I remember I was like, I want to go back there and play again. You know, this is the course I want to play more. And I played like five more rounds there, you know, uh, in my time there. And, and that's what I would say is like, I didn't know though, that rustic Canyon was my favorite course in the area. I had to go play a bunch of other courses to figure out that that was my favorite course. So in that way, the golf world's gotten smaller because like, listen, you can go out and try and find gems, but there's also like been a lot of content created by a lot of different companies that has uncovered really worthwhile, affordable golf. I also think that it's true that it is very possible to appreciate, to enjoy good architecture at a very wide range of courses. You don't have to just look at the great courses to experience good architecture. Sometimes if you play your local public course, you can recognize that it has a few really great holes and you can dig into those. Or you can just find what you think is the best design course in your area. And you can enjoy that. You don't have to necessarily go for these big white whales of golf travel, private courses to, you know, pursue your interest in golf architecture, in my opinion. Right. I think that there's a big potential to just enjoy good architecture as opposed to necessarily insisting on great architecture all the time. Because the reality is that. I spend most of my time, you know, I get to play some awesome places when I go on these trips with with you and and the company, right? We get to go play some incredible places and that's not a privilege that everybody has. I'm really grateful for it. But when I'm home, when I'm out here in the suburbs of Portland, I play my regular golf rounds at normal public courses. The more affordable, the better. Not all of them are great, but there are a couple where I can really enjoy some good golf architecture. And that gives me a lot of pleasure because I'm not paying that much for it. It's just my kind of local course, but I'm able to see something in it that gives me a lot of satisfaction, that makes the game interesting, 
that kind of fills the tank in that way. So I don't need to go play, you know, national golf links all the time, even though it's an incredible privilege to get to go play a place as great as that. I can go appreciate architecture at Forest Hills Golf Course. And I don't know. Is that a good response to that question? Um, Because I I think think when people focus on great architecture, they they just assume that it's the that great architecture is the province of a few courses out there. But I'm saying that you can find great and good architecture in a lot of different places, including courses that maybe aren't that great overall, but just have some cool things about them. Yeah, that's the thing is that like I always feel really good if I go see somewhere and there's like at least one or two things that I'm like, wow, that was really cool. Yes. And like a recent round I played uh there's a course by me called Mill Valley. Nine yeah. Golf yeah. Well, that's a fun place. That's a that's a good piece of land. Or I mean like a funky I, piece of land. It's <laughs> super funky. I mean yeah. it doesn't it, there's there's trees everywhere. Half it's maybe tre- not a good piece of land, but it's like half, a memorable kind of kind of golf course. Yeah. Half the tees are like artificial, you know, turf. You're <laughs> yeah, hitting right. off like like literally like practice mats, like yeah. rocket mats. Right. Um and uh but there's like a world class golf hole out there where I like I saw it. I, it's the fourth hole. It's this great par four that kind of like it's got like a reverse camber and, and dog legs around a tree, and then it, the green sites. It's an incredible green site that's partially blind. You know, it's just a really cool golf hole. And I saw it from like the third hole. I was like, "What's that hole?" You know. And then you go, you you see it, you play it. It's like that's really cool. Like I walked away from that route. I mean, there's a couple of really great views, and and it's like, is this golf course anything super special? No, but there is a golf hole out there that is really truly like world class. And 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 that's the thing is that you know I even think back to like some of the one of the course I grew up playing. Uh, my muti uh, my muti golf at like where i grew up you this know, is the- lake bluff right lake bluff yeah. yeah i mean there's some of the the greens just had this like steady tilt it was almost like you know that where it really reinforced just like you had to be in the right spots because otherwise you get these like 10 foot breaking putts and it taught me from a like a young age like how to where to miss shots like because if you were in the wrong spots you just weren't getting up and down and these this is like the most rudimentary golf architecture you know this golf course has nothing like really special about it but just the tilt like it had severe tilt in the greens and that was the thing that like you know you had to be in the right spots and like to this day i can go around that golf course like with my eyes closed and play good because i know where to miss the ball Mm -hmm. yeah so the golf course i grew up on was uh, santa barbara municipal golf course santa barbara muni and uh you know a, a lot of the stuff out there is not great but there's some incredible land on some holes on that course and some holes that use the land in a super unique, like unreplicable way. And, you know, that are like no other golf holes that I've played in all of my travels. And that's the first 18 hole golf course that I played. It's the municipal golf course in the town where I grew up. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's great that, a lot of great golf course architecture is not accessible to the public. I'm not saying I love that state of affairs, right? I'm not saying that people need to accept that just because, you know, you can appreciate good golf architecture everywhere. But I think if there's anything, any one thing that we just try to do over and over and over in our work on this podcast and what we write is to help people notice things in the everyday golf courses that they play that they can enjoy beyond just playing golf, which is fun in itself. But this adds another layer where you can see good architecture anywhere. And the hope is that that you can do that at the courses in the in the place where you live. Um, so that's uh, that's that's a response there. Maybe a little too optimistic for what Ryan was asking, but I think that's how we feel. All right. That pretty much covers the questions that I definitely wanted to cover. Are there any that you want to throw in here at the end were there ones that we didn't cover that you thought were uh you know we need to get to garrett how about from craig mosier uh any designers out there that you haven't played that you've been meaning to this is this is a cool question i i put this one down to the first name that came to mind was wayne styles yeah um, i played a, a couple of his courses and i think that you know maybe not all of them are super well preserved but that's an architect, a, you know, golden age era architect, I believe. 
um, that uh, I don't know a whole lot about, but there are a ton of Wayne Stiles courses in New England, up in Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, kind of that, that was his area. And I haven't played any of those courses and I'd really like to get to them. You know, another, a, a big one, uh, a big architect that I, I have not played any of his work is Stanley Thompson. And so I, I need to get up to Canada or at least get over to Sleepy Hollow in, in Cleveland and, and see some of his stuff. But for sure, getting up to British Columbia and, and seeing Capilano, I believe is how it's pronounced, <laughs> maybe going up and, and seeing Banff, uh, just seeing a few more uh, Stanley Thompson courses from, from what I've heard, just a sensational architect and uh, somebody that I need to learn more about. What about you? Um, I've seen, I've seen a little, uh, just one course. I've only seen uh, Old Elm, but Harry Colt is a, a big one on my list in terms of just diving deeper into, uh, I'd like to see that. Another one that has international implications. I'd like to see Alec, Alec Russell's uh, work. Yeah, so, yeah, gotta um, go to Oz. Yeah, <laughs> or sure. or New Zealand. He's a paraparuma. There you uh, go. Yeah, that's yeah. That Harry Cold like, is uh, is probably the biggest hole that you and I both have. Right, yeah. maybe the greatest golf architect of all time. And uh, you know, obviously, his courses are mostly in the UK, so uh, that's why we haven't seen many. Yeah, another one would be Devereaux Emmett. Uh, I've seen Garden yeah. City, but I haven't seen a, a lot of his other work. Um, and I'd like to like to get there. I, I you know, but these these are all like I mean, there's a lot of Tillinghast that I want to see. And you know, this is a tough thing is there's there's only so much time. But you know, I think seeing multiple efforts from from architects is is really important because this goes to that question that uh, somebody asked about Mackenzie, like. You can't understand an architect seeing one of their courses for the most part, because like the really great architects are so different between the courses, right? You know, there's different, you know, features and and and, and you know natural features that they had to work with, and different, you know, you know they change too. Like that's the cool thing about some of these architects is the evolution of their style. You know, I don't think like their core principles change. Like I think their core, you know, fundamental design principles stayed the same and beliefs, but their some of their styles and, um, you know, aesthetics would change. So seeing a, a good batch of stuff and that it, it's hard. I mean, that's the hard thing. I think one of the th things that I got a question on earlier, uh, you know, on Twitter at some point was like, it's impossible to see, like for the most part, all of the great architects that worked in America for a long time have like one good public option that everybody can go see, which is nice. But you know, the, uh, the, seeing their bodies of work and seeing a couple really formulate. Um, and then I'm excited for some of these young architects. Like I'm, I'm excited to go see uh, Rob Collins uh second, third, fourth courses um, as they come online um, mm -hmm. just to see what they're, cause I don't think you can have like an accurate um, idea of what their work's going to look like from just, from just nine holes in Tennessee. And that, that Muni course in Memphis yeah, uh, the King Collins built. I, I the name is escaping me right now, but that's one um, that I'd really like uh, to see. Old, um, God, it's killing me. Old yeah. something. It's uh, I, well, uh, you know, recommendation. I believe Will Bardwell of Lying Four has uh, has written about it. So if you want to find out more about that course, go there. But I think that that's going to be. I mean, what we're seeing from King Overton. Collins so far. Overton. Overton. Yeah, there you go. Um, what we're seeing so far from King Collins is interesting and in how varied it has been. Right, because we got Sweeten's Cove course built on a floodplain. Basically, we got Landman course built on uh, land that could barely be golfable. Right, that they had had to make some major interventions in order to make it golfable, and then Overton, where uh, you know they're building a local kind of city course, as far as I understand it. And so we've got some good variety already coming up there. We'll see some nice work from Kyle Franz coming up, some work from uh, uh, Brian Schneider and Blake Conant. So new architects are, are coming online, and I think we're both really looking forward to seeing uh, what some of these next-generation architects are interested in doing. Um, all right, any other questions, or do you want to wrap up there? I think that's a good spot to wrap up. All right, to everybody whose questions did not get answered, my apologies, but I will dive in and answer some more on Twitter, I think, because there are some ones that can be answered fairly briefly. And uh, so happy to do that. But uh, thank you so much, Andy. Talk to you again soon.
This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Matt Rusius. One quick thing that you can do to support the Fried Egg is to give us a rating and review on iTunes. Those really do help. We like to hear feedback, so that is a good way to offer feedback. Another thing that is maybe more substantive that supports the Fried Egg is to join Club TFE. That's our new membership program. To see what it's all about, go to thefriedegg.com slash membership. That's Club TFE. We're having a lot of fun in there right now, posting on the blog, having discussions with members. It's been really great so far, and we'd love for more of you to join us. All right, that's it. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you.